0: Church. My name is Justin. I'm, I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Peninsula Grace. We're going to be in God's Word this morning together to continue to worship Him. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 11 at the end of 11 and the beginning of 12. So I'd invite you to flip there now. We can follow along together. Uh, before we do, I wanted to just a quick uh, pastoral word and a prayer. Um, I know many of you are well aware of this last week. Uh, the a lot of the controversy that swirled, particularly around the events of yesterday, uh, namely at the library, the event that was canceled, but a story time reading, and and then there was mention of drag queens involved, and all of those things. And I know um, I've, I've had many conversations with, with with some of with many of you, uh, and I know uh, you just open up Facebook for five minutes, which is never a great idea, um, and just seeing. Uh, the impact this has had on our community and knowing there are people in this room that have been affected by that dif- in different ways. And so I, I don't want to add any fuel to any fire, but just want to simply pray for us and our community uh, in-, in this cultural moment. So if you just begin with me in, in a word of prayer. Father, you've sent us on a mission to go as salt and light into a dark and dying world, to lift high the name of Jesus, to make disciples of him among all nations. Father, I'm reminded this week that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against evil. And that line of evil, Lord, runs through each of our hearts, starting with my own. So, Father, I'm praying that you would humble us And where there might be hypocrisy and self-righteous condemnation, that we would repent of that. Where we are not loving our neighbor as Christ has first loved us, may we repent of that. Where we're experiencing fear or frustration, hurt, anger, confusion, Lord, would you bring peace and joy and love? And would you, by your mercy and your grace, allow Soldatna and Kenai to flourish according to your heart for those that you loved enough to die for, to reconcile us to yourself. Would you send us out from here as accurate representatives of that love? So Lord help us in this. Would you would you give us wisdom? Would you change us? Would you unite us? Would you forgive us? Would you redeem us? Thank you, Lord, that you use all things for good, even this week, to make us more like Jesus for your glory and the good of our community. And it's in that beautiful name that I pray. Amen. I would invite you, if, if you have more questions or concerns in, in, those, uh, in that regard, come and talk with me or, or someone that you trust and love and I want to endeavor to do this together. I'm going to make a really easy transition here to Calvin and Hobbes. Grew up a big fan of Calvin and Hobbes, and and now having children, I'm going to be able to more easily justify those enjoyments again, which is always exciting. But I loved this one about a perfect storm brewing, and I think it speaks well to our passage today. It says, at 35,000 feet, the engines of Flight 430 explode for no reason. With plumes of dense smoke trailing from the wings, the giant aircraft plummets out of control. Oh, no. Meanwhile, a a 50-car freight train hits a penny on the rail at 80 miles an hour and jumps the tracks, dragging half a million tons of metal into the air behind it. This is not getting any better. In a freak coincidence, both the jet and the train are converging on one spot, if you could believe it, where the tectonic plates in the Earth's crust have just begun to shift. That spot is the house of Farmer Brown, who at this moment is unaware of a gas leak as he attempts to light his stove. As he strikes the match, he casually glances out the kitchen window. And I love Calvin's, his eye twitches involuntarily. And Tob says, can't we play something else? <laughs> this is not <laughs> so good. A perfect storm is brewing and is li- going to literally end in an explosive manner. And and I see that in the text here in John as we've been walking through this gospel where John is recounting the life and work of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In these first 11 chapters, we've seen Jesus teaching about the mission that he's on and, and performing signs to verify his authority from the Father. And in today's story, we see a scene just like Calvin created there of a perfectly brewing storm. We saw it last week where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and that also was raising the temperature on both belief in Jesus and in an unbelief in Jesus. And this is his final sign before his own resurrection, forcing people to deal with him one way or another. It's also Passover week. We're about to enter into the final week of, of Jesus' life pre-resurrection, uh, which means there's this huge crowd in Jerusalem and all over the empire. They've gathered in this one spot. And they're there to celebrate God's slaying of lambs to spare his children from bondage in Egypt. But the bigger context of our story is is the Bible's story of, of a world swirling in darkness and chaos due to her rebellion against her maker. So how will she respond when the lamb that God has sent to her presents himself? Storm is brewing. This morning, we're going to see three different responses to Jesus, the leaders of of Israel, the the crowds there in Jerusalem, and then finally Mary herself. And and my prayer, Father, is that you would help us see and receive your king rightly, that you would allow us to examine our own hearts uh, graciously but truthfully as we read the lives of these stories today, that we would let your word read us. In your beautiful name, we pray, Jesus. Amen. So three things. The first one I see is the leaders, and we see fearful pride coming from the leaders of, of Israel. Um, so cha- chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles, follow along with me, starting in verse 45. I'm in the CSB here. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary... Now, this is just after Lazarus was raised from the dead, in context. We'd read that last week. They came to Mary and saw what uh, he did. They believed in him, but some of them tattled. They went, that, was, that was added in there. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So Remember the Jewish political order of the day, um, they're all under Roman rule. They're the ones that are really calling the shots. But the Sanhedrin is a, a council of 70 men who are overseeing the internal affairs of Israel's life. Now, these Pharisees that come, um, they are, they're a minority group that really don't have much control over anything. So they know they've got to take it up a level to the big guns. They, they can no longer deny the signs. Jesus is healing Most recently, the man born blind, and now Lazarus. And so Jesus is somebody they have to reckon with, but instead of believing in him, they double down as haters. Why? Why why do they keep pushing back against Jesus so hard? Well, we see some of their motivation laid out here. If you look back at at verse 48 here, it says, the Romans are going to come. Everyone's going to believe Jesus And the Romans are going to see that, they're going to come, and they're going to take away our place, which was a reference to the temple, their place of worship, and our nation. They're afraid of those things being taken away. Now, remember, the Jewish people are under the the, the rule of Rome, and And they have these high expectations for this Messiah uh, from God to come and rescue them. And so with Jesus coming, presenting himself as that Messiah, that's firing up their hopes to a a fever pitch. Which would almost certainly cause an uprising and and, and in response bring the full weight of Rome down on their faces. They're afraid that the Romans are going to extinguish them. That they're going to wipe out their way of life, their way of worship to destroy our temple which ironically is going to be destroyed in AD 70, but because of an actual uprising against Rome, not because of what Jesus did or what he taught. They're afraid of losing these things, but, but that fear is steeped in pride. Uh, the, notice the operative word here, our place, our nation. Let's, they don't say God's house, right? His people. They say our And let's call a spade a spade here. We've seen throughout the Gospel of John, their desire is not for the people's well-being. It's for their own power, their own position, their own prestige. In the words of Toby Keith, they want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. There is a, a jealousy that comes with pride that can't share the throne with anybody. And we see this later on in chapter 12. Um, they're afraid of everybody leaving them and going to Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 12, for this reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And then they say the Pharisees are talking to each other down in verse 19. They go, look, the world has gone after him. They're no longer following us. They're following Jesus. They don't like that. And then uh, one of them, uh, one of the, the head of the Sanhedrin, the high priest that year, Caiaphas has something to say. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. And we're about to see that is the pot calling the kettle black. You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, John is a master of the use of irony, but I think this might be his magnum opus. Caiaphas says, let's kill Jesus to save our nation. Caiaphas accidentally preaches the gospel. He he, he says, let's use him as a scapegoat. But in his mind, he's thinking a political scapegoat. That if we kill Jesus, then the Romans won't take our nation away. We'll save our people. But what he doesn't see is this is exactly what Jesus came to do to be the sacrificial lamb, one man dying so that all who would believe would be saved, but not from the physical enemy of Rome, but from the greater enemy lurking inside of our own hearts. But the extra irony is that this is said by the high priest himself. It says in verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. That Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to unite the scattered children of Israel. So from that day on, they, they plotted to kill him. God is speaking prophetically through Caiaphas unwittingly. He doesn't realize that he's, God is using him as a mouthpiece to speak the gospel truth. See, Caiaphas' job as the high priest was to usher people into the throne room of God. But where Caiaphas is failing, Jesus is about to accomplish These things. We see here from these leaders a fearful pride that says, Jesus, don't you dare touch my throne. Again, Caiaphas was accidentally right. Like, it's got to be one or the other. Like, either God is God and he occupies the throne, or I try to be God and occupy the throne. This throne ain't big enough for the both of us. But this is important. Remember, these are the religious leaders. So these are people who thought they were serving God, they thought they were doing the right thing in this. But they were really serving themselves. This is what we call a functional atheism. That we would say, these people would claim, of course, they serve Yahweh. That God is God. That they, are, that they are acknowledging that. But in their actual actions, in their fear, and in their pride, they're showing what they really believe about who belongs on the throne of their hearts. One practical tip as we examine our own hearts in that is to watch our pronouns. So they said, here, our place, our, 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 land, our people, right, our nation. Caiaphas said, hey, it's to your advantage if we take out Jesus. How often are we using my and our in a way that shows possession? This week, someone was talking to me and mentioned, he said, they said, your church. I said, no, 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 no. No, this is not, this is not truly, it's not, this is, this, this is the church of Jesus. I'm an under shepherd. I'm a part of that body, but it belongs to him. We, we are stewards, and this is especially for us as in places where we have leadership or responsibility. We're stewards of these things that God has given us. They don't belong to us. They belong to him. So like these leaders here, let me ask your heart, like, what are you afraid of losing? My family, my community, my future. What area of your life do you need to let go of your fill in the blank and acknowledge God's rightful place on the throne there? We see the fearful pride of the leaders. The second thing we see here is a short-sighted hope from the crowds. We look at the the famous triumphal entry of Jesus. Skip down to uh, chapter 12, verse 12. We'll, We'll come back to Mary in the middle there at the end. The next day, verse 12, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! That's what we sang in our opening song. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So... Welcome, everybody, to Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. This is most likely Sunday of that week. He'll die on Friday, raised on Sunday a week from that moment. Now, it says there's a large crowd there. Um, We don't know the numbers exactly. About 30 years later, historian Josephus said there was about 2.7 million people worshiping at this Passover festival, not including those who weren't allowed to worship for other reasons. Um, So there's a big crowd here right a huge gathering and you've already got here's your perfect storm brewing right there's this huge crowd gathering for the passover as is usual but specifically this time they're here because they're jacked for jesus they've just seen him raise lazarus from the dead and they're going is this the guy like, is this the Messiah who's finally here? And they start waving pr- palm branches in the air like they just don't care. Uh, the, these palm branches that they used, they got from date palms. Uh, these were plentiful around Jerusalem at the time. They actually still are to, to this day. Um, this is also, I think, a reference to those sweaty things when you go out with somebody for the first time. Sorry, that was... So this, this became, though, these, these branches that they waved became this symbol of rebellion. Um, so they used these 200 years earlier, where the first time this kind of became almost, these palm branches almost became like a national flag. Or a symbol specifically of of rebellion. So the the Maccabees, uh, about 200 years earlier, had had they drove out these Jewish leaders had driven out the Syrian forces that had been occupying Israel, and that's when they first started waving these palm branches. We're not going to take it type mentality. Now, uh, about 30 years after this moment of the triumphal entry, they're going to show up again. They start printing them on coins, uh, these revolutionary coins that were used during the Jewish wars against. Rome, that eventually leads to the sacking of the temple in, in AD 70. seventy. They're basically telling Rome, talk to the palm, right? This was a this was a an ancient rebellion symbol. We we see these to this day, the the sign of the anarch, uh, anarchy symbol, right? Or the fist that was used again in, in the socialism um, backlashes. Um, anybody know what this one is? I knew I'd have Star Wars nerds out there, you know. And then finally, the most famous one of all. I don't know. Is that right? Is that the right? That's close. All right. Sorry. This became a symbol of national hope for this Messiah to come and liberate the people. So, this gives us an idea when they're waving these palm branches exactly what's in their minds. They shout out what we sang earlier Hosanna. This word, literally in the Hebrew, meant give salvation now. It's a reference to Psalm 118. Um, Every year when they would come to these three festivals, this Hallel, these group of psalms from Psalm 113 to 118 in our Bibles, were what they would sing. And this was right in the middle of those psalms. And what they're quoting here, the verse in in our psalm says, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, please grant us uh, success. And when they got to this part, they would wave these little lulaves. They were these little um, shoots that they would use from willow and myrtle tied together with this palm leaf. And they actually became, these lulaves became known as hosannas because they would shake them uh, at, at this point. And there was this whole elaborate waving process. And if you have 20 minutes in a YouTube account, this guy will tell you exactly how to do it, which is a good time. But by this time, Hosanna had become not even necessarily literally to mean save us, but it was a generic term of praising God. Like even most of you, when we sang that song earlier today, you're like, Hosanna, what does that mean? I don't know, It's a Bible word. We just, we say it, right? But it, it literally meant save us. And I think, again, we see here somebody maybe asking better than they knew They were just praising but not realizing save us is exactly what Jesus, the one in front of them, has come to accomplish. And then they sing the next part of the psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the very next verse. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So this was a praise used by these pilgrims. To some degree, speaking of themselves, blessed is the one who comes, who comes to worship in the name of the Lord. But specifically, it was to praise the Messiah, the the one that would come from the throne of David to Hosanna, to save them. But the king they're about to see is not the king that they're expecting as they wave palm branches in the air. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, many of you know this is a prophecy uh, from so- uh, Zechariah nine nine. Says, "Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Israel! Why, look, your King is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat." So this would have been this kind of record scratch moment for the people. Certainly, after all this fanfare, right? They're they they're ready. But then they who do they see coming? There's this balloon deflating type moment where it's like, this is our king? Where is the fanfare? Where's the war horse? Where's the army? Right? Could we get a kazoo? Like, could we get anything? Like, this is it? This is our king? Th- they're waiting for Lexington and Concord, right? They want to they take down Rome. But they have missed a key portion of this prophecy. Because, see, in the ancient world, when, when, when a king came for war, they would ride in on a white horse. When they came in peace, when they came for peace, they would ride in on a donkey. Now, make no mistake, you read Revelation 19, and what does it say? He who is faithful and true will come riding, and it says, on a white horse for war. But that's not this moment. This time he comes humble. Did you notice that word? He he is, yet yet he is humble. And what is Paul going to say? Jesus will humble himself even to the point of death. Because he knew the real road to peace was not the road that exterminated the Romans it was to defeat sin and death the prophecy was right there but even the disciples don't get it right away look at verse 16 his disciples did not understand these things at first however when Jesus was glorified meaning either his his crucifixion or resurrection or or kind of the combo of all those when he ascended to heaven then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him even his disciples are, are slowly putting this together in hindsight of what Jesus came to do and accomplish. And that, that's a plug for us to read the whole Bible. So we, we can only rightly understand the Old Testament when we see Jesus fulfilling it in the New Testament. But in the exact same way, the only way we're going to understand the New Testament is to understand the context that's built on uh, from the Old Testament. So if we're going to make full sense of who Jesus is and the lives that we're called to lead as we follow him, we got to know our whole Bibles. That's why we've got we to study this thing together. It's what we're trying to do right now. The crowd's short-sighted hope said, Jesus, would you defeat my enemy? But specifically in mind, they had my external enemy. The Jews wanted a king, but they misunderstand the kind of king that's been promised, the enemy that he had come to defeat. See, it was right and good that they wanted Jesus to save them, the Messiah to save them from the Romans. God had given his people specific promises to return them to the rightful place in their land to worship him freely. But what they've missed is why they were under Roman rule in the first place. See, God could have obliterated every Roman soldier and Caesar himself and the Pharisees, the crowds, still wouldn't have joy and peace. Why? Because it wasn't, the problem wasn't the external force of a Roman army. It was an internal rebellion against their maker. Our fundamental problem too, brothers and sisters, is not external. It's not them out there. It's right in here. It's a wrong relationship with God. And the solution is a right one. And when we make, here's the problem. When we make the problem external, then then what are we going to be asking God for? To deal with an external problem. We have to stop making other people and our circumstances the problem. That is misdirected anger, and it's a misdirected hope. And this is one of Satan's craftiest lies. One of his craftiest lies is to say, hope lies just around the circumstantial corner. I find myself getting suckered into this all the time. Like, like man, if I could just get married, if I could just have a kid, if I could just get a raise or a job change, if I could just find some pain relief, if I could just have that one person start treating me right. And we could, but listen, we know like I could rub the lamp and have all my wishes granted. But if I don't learn how to receive my father's love through Jesus and how to love him back through Jesus, Paul is clear in Corinthians, I got nothing. So let me ask you, what short-sighted solution have you been putting your hope in? In our last story here, I see Mary helping orient, reorient our hearts to the only sure anchor, the only firm foundation for that hope. Let's look at the the humble devotion of Mary. So we'll skip back up to um, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was the one who Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a a dinner for him there. Martha, on brand, was serving them, right? And Lazarus, who was uh, was one of the ones reclining at the table with him. And I imagine that moment, Lazarus is like, again, Jesus, just can't thank you enough for bringing me back. Like, this is so great. Then Mary, verse 3, took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this, this nard that they talk about, it was an oil that was extracted from uh, the root or spike of a nard plant. Some of your translations might say spike nard because it was the, the, nard, it was the spike of the nard where it came from. Uh, it was grown in, uh, in India, and wouldn't you know it, doTERRA got their hands on this stuff, right? <laughs> it cures leprosy, cancer, all sorts of, it's amazing. Um, so it was about a pound that she uses, 11 ounces was a litre. Uh, and so we're going to see from Judas in a couple verses, this is 300 denarii worth. And since most of you don't think in terms of denarii, that would, one denarius was a full day's wage for a common laborer. So this would have been a full day's wages, a full year's wages, excuse me, um, literally, because they weren't allowed to work on Sabbath and Holy Days. So 300 years was the max amount of days you could work as a laborer. So this is a huge sum, right? And, and Mary, scholars would say this probably either means that her family was loaded which we have some other reason to believe that might be the case, or it was a family heirloom passed down. Martha's like, hey, that's Grandma's nard. What are you doing? You know? um, so, but what we see from Mary is, is uh, first of all, a devotion. So you imagine a full year's worth of, of wages. I did this because I had time on my hands this week. So this is, I was looking for like what would be, could we buy a full year's wages of, of, of perfume right now? Sadly, yes. So, um, J'adore l'or, Prestige Edition by Dior, for 75,000 dollars, can be yours, right? So this this bottle of perfume costs $75,000, which is insane. But imagine I take that over to Jill and I say, Sweetheart, take off your socks. (laughs) I want to show you how much I love you, right? (laughs) Regardless of the cost, regardless of the sacrifice, Mary is saying this is my love for my Savior. There's a devotion to Jesus, she evidences here, but there's also a humility. So she washes her feet, his feet, and then she dries it with her hair, and culturally, women always had their hair up, because if a woman had her hair down in public, it was a symbol of, let's say, ill repute. And so here's Mary saying, I don't care about my reputation. What's worth everything to me is my Savior. And they would have typically at the day been reclining with their heads toward the table and their feet away. So it would have been very easy access. They're not sitting at a table like we are. And they're like, whoa, what's going on down there, right? Like Mary, she humbles himself and, and serves Jesus by washing his feet with this expensive perfume. But of course, there's some pushback. Verse 4, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, John notes, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, that objection on the surface sounds good, right? That sounds right. That's a, that's a fair, it might be something. That, one of the things rolling around in my head. But then in verse 6, John gives us the director's cut. He, he gives us some uh, explanation here. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was... Put in there. So just like the Jewish leaders earlier, he uses some protectively kind language, but John shows us his heart. We see Judas's duplicity, saying one thing, meaning another. And I think we can do this often with social activism, that even for good causes, uh, we can we can do things without any genuine love for the other, and certainly not for the glory of God. You see companies all the time donating to charity just for a good PR. Or how often do we we donate our clothes to Salvation Army? Because it's like, well, that's the one thing I did this year for others, kind of appease my conscience. There's a motive issue in those things. But worse than that, we see John juxtaposing two things. This pure nard that Mary lavishes on Jesus' feet is an indicator of her pure love for Jesus versus the pure greed that we see from a supposed follower of Jesus. John tells us here, he's a straight-up swindler. This is like if we had a shady usher at church, it's like, I'll count the money, right? This points to to Judas' greedy heart, a heart that's indicated ultimately in his willingness to throw his Savior under the bus for 30 pieces of silver. And like Caiaphas, he's showing us what he values more than his God and Savior. It did not take long to look under my own heart to see, if I'm honest, day to day, what are some things that I tend to value more than my God and my Savior, in verse 7, story continues, Jesus answered, leave her alone. I love how Jesus stands up for Mary in this moment. She has kept it for the day of my burial. So people would, would, would spend lavish sums at funerals. Uh, much of that was perfumes and spices to mask the decaying body's smell. They didn't have embalming and kind of modern-day techniques that we do. Mary is, but notice here, she's lavishing it on Jesus while he's still alive. Like he hasn't yet been buried, which makes me wonder if she has a real understanding of what's about to go down. Unlike everybody else in this story here, Mary seems to be the only one who's catching on. Jesus is about to die and be buried. Now, notice here in verse 8, Jesus says, For you will you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, is Jesus here saying not to give to the poor? Well, we have way too much teaching from him that contradicts that. And even here, he says, you're going to continue to have the poor. Like, you're going to continue to be giving to the poor. But there's a unique moment here that Mary's preparing me for my death and my burial and my resurrection, which, by the way, is the ultimate gift to the poor of this world. The very gift of God himself, what we need most, more than any coin or food. What we see here is a humble devotion from Mary that says, Jesus... You're worthy of it all. And Mary puts her money where her mouth is, or where Jesus' feet were. Jesus is worth her all. And here we see this, a comparison with the leaders and the crowds who just want to take from Jesus for their own ends. Here we have Mary who loves Jesus and gives her all to him. But why, Mary? Why are you giving your all to this man? Remember, we said it's Passover week. In particular, it is um, Palm Sunday is the very next day. And interestingly, in in the Hebrew calendar, we're in the month of Nisan, and the 10th of Nisan would have been the day this year that the Palm Sunday landed on. And this rewinds the tape back to the original Passover, and what God told Israel through Moses. He said, tell the whole community of Israel that when on the 10th day of this month, that would be Nisan, they must select an animal of the flock. This was the original Selection Sunday, even better than March Madness. This was a day where they would select the spotless lamb to be slain to spare the death of their firstborn. And and what do we see here in the 10th of Nisan? The people have just unwittingly selected their spotless lamb. He said, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes our deliverer. Let's get out of Egypt. And and Caiaphas, the high priest, also has unwittingly identified the spotless lamb. Here's the one that it'd be better to kill to spare our nation. And Mary seems to be the only one who knows what she's saying here, that Jesus was the spotless lamb slain for her own spots. That without this man, my life is worth nothing. In the very next chapter, Jesus himself is gonna wash The feet of his disciples, indicating he has come to serve, not to be served. And in the greatest act of humble devotion to his father and to us, he lays his life down so that we might have life. The spotless lamb slain for sinners. So what does this look like for us? How do we humble ourselves before the feet of Jesus and say, you are worthy of it all? What's interesting, this nard was often used um, for a woman to pay her bride price or dowry. So often t- so if Mary has just dumped that all out on the feet of Jesus, this could drastically reduce the likelihood of her stepping into a favorable marriage. And in a woman in that day, this was huge. She's saying, there's one groom for me one ultimate provider and protector. There's only one to whom I ultimately bow before. Jesus is worth my money, my security, my feature. Mary got her pronouns right here. She knew who this all belonged to in the first place. So what about for us? What does what a radical sign of humble devotion to your king look like? Like Mary... We do. We are called to sacrificially, generously give our financial resources for the kingdom. But equally precious resources of time and energy and relationship. If, if we're going to echo Jesus and go into the world and wash feet, it's going to get stinky, right? Like it's going to be messy and complicated, and we won't be thanked for it. To truly love our neighbor means more than an angry Facebook rant. It means doing the hard work of loving our family, loving our neighbor, loving the lost in our community, to do exactly what Jesus did when he came to wash our feet. Just like that Calvin and Hobbes strip, and and, and here in John 11 and 12, we find ourselves today in the midst of of a storm that's brewing. We live in a world, this last week reminded us of sin and chaos and death, but man, in the eye of this storm, we find the calm. We find the Lamb of God, That we bow down before and we give him our lives and say, you're worthy of it all. We're going to, in response to seeing the beauty of Jesus in this text, respond with a song, you are are worthy of it all. But I just want to remind us of the lyrics as we meditate our hearts on this. It says, all the saints and angels, all those who love and serve the king, they bow before your throne. All the elders cast their crowns. Everything we have, the most costly possessions we have, we lay them before the Lamb of God and we sing, you, you are worthy of it all. And brothers and sisters, this is the day coming. There is a day coming when every person who has ever lived is gonna take a knee and in the middle of this global genuflection, in the middle of it all, is gonna be that humble servant king. He's gonna be sitting on his good throne. And in that moment, In that moment, as we're bowing down, every saint and angel on their knees, I don't think I'm going to be like, man, I wish I would have saved more money before I died. Man, I wish I would have made it more about me. Like, in that moment, I won't even be able to talk because my jaw is going to be dragging on the ground. So behold the lamb who was slain. Don't be a functional atheist like the leaders who in fear and pride said, this is my throne. We're going to see one day, clearly it is not. May we humbly recognize who alone is to be feared. And maybe not like the crowds set our hope short on idols. Idols who will necessarily, inevitably disappoint us. Our hope can only be anchored in a right relationship with everlasting love Himself. There's only one who occupies the throne. May we, like Mary, pour ourselves out and sing, You're worthy of it all. Why? We're going to sing, For from you are all things. Like all these things. We got to get our pronouns right. These are yours every good blessing paul says every spiritual blessing we have comes in the person of Jesus so they rightfully all go back to him for from you are all things therefore to you are all things you truly rightfully deserve all the glory and then we get to the weird part day and night night and day let incense arise and i know that kind of language makes some of y'all twitch so just settle down right just like the fragrance I saw when I'm reading this, man, to think about when Mary and the nard fills the room with what? The fragrance of that perfume, an indicator of her humble devotion, but ultimately the sweet-smelling offering of Jesus himself. And when we sing this song, we're not, this is not some weird juju ju- ju- thing, right? This is a symbol. In the temple, the, the incense was a symbol of the offerings of the prayers and praises of, the, of God's people. And they're only sweet smelling in the nostrils of our king because of the sweet smelling sacrifice that Jesus first offered up on our behalf. Father God, we come before your throne together today. My prayer is that we would rightly see that throne. That right now, Lord, the best thing for us is to take our eyes off of ourselves completely and to place them squarely on the lovely face of Jesus. Lord, would you remove pride and fear in our lives and see the humility of our King? Would you remove the short-sighted hope out of our own hearts and anchor it fully in the one who said, It is finished. By your grace, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of what Christ has accomplished for us, all that he has given to us, that we hold with open hands and offer back to your feet in worship. May we truly sing from the bottom of our hearts that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of it all. It's in his name that all God's people said.